do we? <laughs> All right, so um, we worked this up about five minutes ago. Um, Rob's going to read a brief excerpt from the book to give you a taste, since today we should just give a big round of applause because today is the official publication date. <laughs> And, and before, uh, before we start, I will just say that I'm really thrilled to be here. I have loved Rob as a person and as a writer for since I first met him, which is over 20 years. So. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. First time we talked was I told you we should go out for a drink. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I am really, really delighted that this book is out, and I'm delighted that we're going to get to talk about it, and you guys should all buy multiple, multiple copies of it. Sell out, <laughs> sell out the store. Okay. <clears throat> well, thanks so much, David. Uh, is this... Is this Right? Is this all right? Yeah. All right, good enough. I'm just going to read a, a really short, and it's a self-contained passage. The, I think the only thing you need to know about this is uh, at this point in the uh, narrative, uh, a, char- a character calls the protagonist Tom Pity Patty, um, and that's because I, I wore at a basketball camp a Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers Damn the Torpedoes t-shirt nearly every day. Um, and... Uh, this guy Malcolm called me Tom Pity Patty for the rest of the summer. Um, so I think that's all you need to know. Um, winter 1979. You were the only white kid drinking with your best friends from the Winter Basketball League, Malcolm and Terry, and a few other kids you don't know that well. Malcolm always brings red wine. You once asked him if he could bring you beer, and he laughs at you. Tom Pity Patty, beer is a very fucking white thing to drink. <laughs> white people drink beer and then sit around the next day talking about how much beer they drank. <laughs> you are passing a bottle, and you and Terry are sh- sharing a swisher sweet, and snow is falling in soft, heavy flakes that look as big as packing peanuts. Someone complains that he'll have to shovel the fucking snow in the morning, and one of the guys says that Super John Williamson won't have to shovel his snow. Super John Williamson is a hero of all of yours. He plays for the New Jersey Nets. He's from the poorest, worst part of New Haven, and it's a famous local story in basketball circles that as a kid, Super John Williamson had to shovel snow just to help his family get enough money to eat. That's for me, I'm reading. He was truly poor, and you feel guilty sitting around with guys like Malcolm and Terry, who are also poor, while you live two towns over and you're fine. Your parents are solidly middle class, and you are white, and even at 13, you know that you have an enormous and unfair advantage. Super John Williamson shoveled snow from the time he was seven years old, and he knew what it felt like to go to bed hungry. And he dreamed about getting the fuck out of shitty New Haven, and he did so because he was one of the greatest basketball players anyone had ever seen. Super John Williamson vowed that when he made it, he would buy his mother a house, and he would build himself a mansion in the nicest part of town, and he would never shovel snow again. And now everybody around you knows that Super John Williamson signed a huge contract with the Nets and has a mansion in New Haven that has heating coils installed under the driveway so that when it snows, he flicks a switch and the snow melts. And he's done interviews about how he flicks that switch and he watches his snow melt and he remembers every shovel full of snow he ever had to lift. 
Super John Williamson has even, you're pretty sure, had his name legally changed from his given name, given name to his nickname. He was just John Williamson, but now legally he's Super John Williamson. And everybody has to call him that, and he writes it on checks. Every single one of you on these steps thinks he's going to be a pro basketball player. You and six million other kids are convinced that one day they'll be one of the 300 NBA players. You're all getting a little buzzed from the wine, and someone says you should go watch the snow melt at John Williamson's house. Seven of you pile into Malcolm's brother's car. None of you are old enough to drive. Malcolm is the oldest at 15, but he shouldn't be driving. Maybe more than any of all of you, he's been arrested at least twice for stealing and joyriding in strangers' cars. With his priors, he could be arrested and locked up for driving his brother's car. If you or Terry were driving, or any of the other guys, you'd be arrested, but it probably wouldn't mean you'd be locked up. But you can't drive, and even if you could, you'd never take the risk. You are the smallest person in the car, so you sit on the center console between the two front seats, facing backwards with your ass aching the whole way. The snow starts sticking to the road on Route 95, and it's slick by the time you get to the house. You park across the street. The seven of you spill out of the car. The snow is falling more quickly now, and you stand across the street, and all of you watch in awe as the streets and sidewalks grow thick and white with snow, and Super John Williamson's driveway sits black and wet and warm. You think you see someone look out from inside the house, but you can't be sure if this is memory or invention. In three years, Malcolm will be dead, thrown off the roof of a six-story building in Bridgeport. Terry will be in a wheelchair, a quadriplegic from a gunshot to the neck. You are the only person who ever leaves his hometown. Even Super John Williamson will owe so much in back taxes to the IRS, he will one day lose the glorious house you are standing at in the falling snow. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. All right, so let's jump right in and start with uh, let's start with this question of memory and invention, which is a big part of the book because part of the book or a central theme of the book involves um, concussions and and the possibility of lost memory or brain damage. So there's a kind of reclamation aspect, but also a sense of doubting the memories that are being written about. And um, I'm curious about that question, both as an aesthetic thing in terms of the memoir, but also in a very deeply personal way as a as a human thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. This keeps falling. Um, so can you, you notice it? It's uh, it, it's got some middle-aged issues. I yeah. Think, yeah. Do you know the the proper pronunciation of that is flaccid, not not flaccid. I did not know that. Yeah, I heard a guy on, on NPR who was a. Uh, one of those dictionary knows how to pronounce people. This is one of the many reasons I love Rob because of these bits of information. It's only about five minutes till we start talking about Mata Hoople. So, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to steer um, you back. Memory and invention. Let's talk a bit about that. Well, part of it. I mean, part of the the, the whole notion of the book was that it's an interrogation of memory. Uh, you know that um, that 
you know, I mean, even the notion that five people can witness the same event and come away with five different stories, and sometimes radically different stories, um, but also ones that you ex experienced at one point in your life may change over time. You know, there's... Um, I mean, in science, like what we see, people who can see, we only actually see about 80% of what we see, and the brain fills in the other 20%. Um, and I think memory works in, in very much the same fashion, is that we remember a lot of core images and, and statements from certain times, but we, we fill in a lot to make it make sense in a narrative way. Um, on, on the personal end, as far as... Uh, well, and also, I, and I, I think I use it in the book, uh, the Nabokov notion that memory itself is a revision. Right, you're, it, you're remembering, you're, you're not remembering the thing itself, you're remembering essentially the last time you remembered it. Right. And you're also honing the story. Right, and, and it keeps to a certain degree changing over time. Mm -hmm. um, but even the first time you do it, it's different than the original experience. Um, but on the personal side, I mean, I've had... I, in testing between seven and nine concussions um, and I have what's known as post-concussive syndrome um, so I have some memory issues that uh, statistically uh, my odds for early dementia are much higher than a normal person's um, so that was one of the reasons for writing the book was while I still could remember everything, I wanted to remember it. I mean, it's it, people have already reviewed the book and mistakenly said that, like, I'm not going to remember anything in 10 years right. or something. <clears throat> and in the book, I, I think I'm pretty clear about the fact that I'm statistically at a higher chance for early dementia. I'm not a guaranteed to get it. And there have been, like, some reviews that are like, Rivera gets this book down, and in two years he'll be in a wheelchair just, you know, <laughs> eating jello. <laughs> Actually, in one of the, uh, one, when we were shopping the book, um, there were a few presses interested at the end, and there was a fourth. And the guy had published the, the Pat Summerall story, who was a sportscaster who got uh, Alzheimer's. And, you know, like pretty much anyone who gets it, very sadly and tragically, as opposed to the happy Alzheimer's stories. <laughs> um, but this guy, uh, apparently that was his editorial hard-on, was people who were losing their minds. Because um, he said... Is this happening to him at this point? Like, could we market the book with him yeah. losing his mind? <clears throat> and I'm like, so you want to, like, wheel me out on the Today Show, you know? You could do that, you know. Go out in the hospital robe. But, and, like, yeah. that was the determining factor with whether he bought or didn't buy the book was, like, in how bad shape I was in. Right. But you also, I mean, you know... Obviously, the, it is a memoir called Liar, which in my view is probably the greatest title ever for a memoir, um, since it gets to the core issues of the genre in, in, I don't mean that in a critical way, but just in, a, in, a, in an aesthetic way. But you actually talk in the book, I mean, weave throughout the book stories and inventions. You talk about your own inventions in a certain way, the embellishment of certain stories. Right. Um, so I'm also interested in that, the way that we build identity out of telling these stories. There are certain stories, I mean, 
you, you can share them. The one that pops into my mind is the GPA story where um, you tell this story about a, a spectacularly low GPA during oh, a, yeah. a semester of college. And then when you have to apply for a job and turn in your college transcripts, you discover that, in fact, your GPA was even lower than, yeah, the, than, yeah. the, than the invented GPA. But that question of lying as well as sort of... Um, memory, memory editing, memory adjustment, memory revision, and then added onto that a factor of lying. How do we ever really know who we are? Well, that's, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, there's, like, I mean, in the book I go through some, like, total lies that I've told, and, like, every lie that I think that gets covered in the book, I call myself out on. For, well, first you tell the lie as if it's true. Oh, not always, but much of the time. First you tell the lie as if it's true, and then you double back. Yeah, I do, I do both. Right. But I don't think anything in the book ultimately is a lie. Like, mm -hmm. I call myself on every one of the lies I use in the book. So, like, nothing that's in there that isn't explicitly called a lie is not a lie, if that makes sense. Um, it's not all bullshit. Uh, but, you know, there's something about, like, for someone who's been uh, in a relationship with with the same partner for a number of years, like, you'll be out at dinner with, with a group of people, and you'll be telling a story, and you'll look over at your partner, and he or she will be like, you're changing this fucking story. <laughs> and, you know, especially when you're, you know, with writers, I think, but everyone does it, is like, you know, you're making the story better, but it's getting further from its initial sort of story, and, and someone has sat there and listened to you tell the story for 13 years, and they know you incredibly well and thinks you're just bullshitting the people we're sitting next to, to be more entertaining. Um, you know, and I think there's an element of that, but there, there's also on, on a much deeper level the, the lies that get us through um, our days. I mean, there's a great, um, I don't know what the real quote is, um, but in uh, Chekhov's story, Gooseberries, he misquotes Pushkin in saying, uh, the lie that elates us is dearer than a thousand sober truths. <laughs> and I think that that's a, a big part of how we make up our self-identity, is um, to get through certain days we lie about who we are. Yeah, no, I think that's right. We're always telling ourselves stories in some way that, um, I mean, sometimes those stories are negative. That supports what we need that day. Sometimes right. those stories are positive. But we're always casting ourselves in certain roles, right? right? Um, so from the point of view of writing the book, this is, you've, I mean, you've published essays and you've written across genre, but this is your first nonfiction book. Yeah. Um, you published four fiction books, collection of short stories and three novels. What's and and the last novel was, you know, I don't want to say completely autobiographical, but it had strong autobiographical elements. Yeah, heavily so. Yeah. So what is the I'm curious about the impetus to do this as nonfiction from the point of view of someone who has has been so steeped in in, in writing fiction. But the impetus to do it and also the challenges of doing it. Well it was you know, I mean from a very personal like the uh, career arc thing, which you know no one else cares about, which is it's great that I'm bringing it up in front of 40 people. Um, I think 60 people. <laughs> That's the lie I'm going to tell us. <laughs> um, but my fiction had been growing increasingly autobiographical over time, and I sort of decided that I was going to finally just take it on in nonfiction and be done with me. Like that I had written about myself in various ways in 
you know, for at least 15 years, if not my earliest work, at least the last 10 or 15 years. And as you said, the last novel was, was pretty highly autobiographical. And, um, and I thought, well, I may, you know, try to just go s- straight and tell my own story for once. And then hopefully it would, it would be the conclusion of a phase of my career and I would move on to tell stories about other people, right. if that made sense. I was sort of writing myself out of myself in, in a way. Interesting. Did they overlap? Did you work on the novel? What, did you start the memoir? Did you finish the novel, the most recent novel, before you began the memoir? Was there a period of time where you were working on both of them at, at once? They did not overlap. Um, they did? <laughs> And there we see the invention of the story, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Apparently they overlapped. I think I seem to remember them overlapping too, but I've been, you know. Um, really? You sure? We, TNB huh? published excerpts of them in 2011. Oh, that's right. And the book came out, the fiction book came out in 2013. Right. Yeah, yeah they overlapped. <laughs> There we go. I wish that was the last question. Okay, um, but but you know, so in terms of moving that, you know, so in a, in a work of fiction, autobiographical though it may be, you've got the leeway to change things around. Obviously, something. I mean, going back to what you were talking about about that reinvention of stories, something isn't working or fitting. There's a better way to tell the story. You can you can tweak it. One of the things I really admire about this book is that it does have that rigorous intention to tell the truth, even though it acknowledges that the truth is either doesn't exist or is not really um, graspable. So in terms of framing through fiction or nonfiction, what were the differences, what are the challenges in terms of, of coming to the memoir? Um, you know, I really thought they'd be the same. I mean, having uh, written for over 20 years and done uh, at that point three novels, well, three publishable novels, probably like five novels, um, I really thought that coming to the memoir, it would be just like doing a novel. They're mm-hmm. both long-form narratives, and they you know, present the same challenges. You have a character who you have to put in some kind of crisis and you know, put them under pressure and see what comes out and things like that. And I really thought they would, they'd be very much the same. And uh, really early in it, I, I found out it was, for one thing, a lot harder for, for me to do the memoir. Um, because uh, it was, uh, you know, it, you couldn't hide behind the guise of saying, well, I made that up, you know. Right, the character has your name even when you're writing about the character. <laughs> yeah, in second, I mean, there's right? a narrative persona, but it still ultimately has to be shit that happened to you. Mm-hmm. And so if someone comes up afterwards and says, you know, oh, did, you know, whatever, you know, the scene on page 68 where, you know, you totally, you know, embarrass yourself, you know, like, yeah, yeah, that was me. (laughs) Um, But it was also harder uh, in ways I never anticipated. Like, uh, um, I expected there to be uh, the ethics of telling the truth involved, uh, you know, because we all know about any number of memoirs where it, writers have been caught later um, with, you know, largely made-up narratives, and I thought that would be, you know, obviously something to avoid, but an easy ethical dilemma to spot. Right. Um, but a really difficult ethical dilemma that I had no idea would occur was that I wasn't, um, and Patrick and I talked about this at one point. There's a guy named Patrick up here, by the way. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, in a memoir, you're not just telling your story. You're telling other people's stories, family, lovers, um, you know, some people who broke the law with you who may not want to be exposed for having done so, Um, you know, people who have real jobs now as opposed to (laughs) people who are lucky like me. Um, You know, but there was... A responsibility to other people's narratives that I, I really didn't see coming, um, and they had to be sort of ruthless and fair, fair um, but uh, you know, really sort of not be judgmental at all, but present it as, as authentically as I could with, without judgment. Well, you also have that challenge of creating them on the page as characters, right? They have to live and breathe on the page as characters for people who don't know them in real life, but right. yet they are, in fact, analogs to their their living selves, right? right. They have their own names. Um, yeah, I mean, there are at least, I think, ten people in the book who have their own names. I asked... I asked everyone I, who I could if if I could use their name, and no one turned me down, oddly enough. Um, and some of the dead people have their real names because right. the legal department at Crown said that was fine. Um, <laughs> dead people can't sue. <laughs> um, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> That dead Blame the dead people. <laughs> no, it's funny. I mean, I once wrote an essay where I um, I was writing about such a, a sort of legally questionable situation, and I used the person I was engaged in. I used his real name, but I sort of coyly put, you know, uh, my friend. Let's call him Steve. Um, and then at the end, I felt kind of guilty, and I said to my editor, you know, I think we should change the name. Um, and she said, why? You used a, a pseudonym for him. I said, no, that was just a game. It's his real name. And she said, oh, no, the statute of limitations has not run out. You have to change his name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I also wonder, I mean, because there is a way in which, you know, you write the book in the second person. Right. We all know from reading it, the convention of the second person is that that second person narrator, for want of a better word, is in fact uh, you know your stand-in, your literary stand-in. But you yourself are—I um, mean—is you're, you're creating a little bit of distance between you, the writer, and you, the character, by uh, by moving into that second person um, voice. How how did that voice develop, and how much does that play into that question of exposure? Well, actually, it was a, a, it was an interesting experience because there was a simultaneous uh, distancing and intimacy for me. Um, like a friend of mine was working on a novel at one point and, and she was writing it in first person and she had decided that her main character would have all these sexual fetishes that she did not have. And she was writing it and she's like, I can't write this. I can't write that I want to be pissed on. You know? And uh, I'm like, sure you can. Who can't write that? Um, you got to be fearless in literature. <laughs> um, and I wish it had been me, but a, a mutual friend of ours suggested her, that she write it in third person and that it would create a narrative distance in the authorial mind that she could tell the story in, in a more authentic way if she were to create a distance from herself as a writer. And then, I mean, not but, to sidetrack, but to sidetrack, did she then go back and, no, once it was she, written, go back to first person? No, or she kept she it in kept third. It, in third. Uh, it just worked that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, 
Either way, it would have worked, you know, for the example I'm using. Like, you could have gone back to first as long as you got it right, right. you know, in third. Um, but choosing second, I mean, there were a few reasons for it, but one of the things that I, I found really interesting about it was that it, it did create a narrative distance where it felt like there was an authorial persona who was obviously me, but also a persona um, that calls attention to the reader that it's a literary persona. Right. Um, but it allowed me to be more truthful about for certain things than I might have been if I'd been writing. I did this and I did that. Do you have an example of what that one of the one or two of those moments? Huh. Um, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I think. Uh, you know the the scenes that really make me cringe and would have been hard to admit. Um, there's a scene with my father uh, where uh, that I I really didn't want to tell. I mean, there were a bunch of stories in here I didn't want to tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, but uh, I mean, I guess I should finish the story. My father's not here. Unfortunately, I don't mean this in a bad way. He's not dead, um, so he he could sue me, um, <laughs> but he knows what I'm worth, so that's not going to happen. Uh, but it, it um, at one point when I when I was a little kid, we, I I, um, I was eating Brussels sprouts, or I wasn't eating them. And my mother said, you have to eat your vegetables before you leave the table. And I said, I, I can't eat these. I can't stand these. And my father was, like, reading the Bridgeport Post, which was, like, you never saw his face during dinner. You just saw the, the newspaper. And then you'd, you'd see the corner pulled down when he said, shut the fuck up or be quiet. Those were the, the, the gentle way of putting it. And... Uh, and I started like cutting them in half and swallowing them like enormous pills because I couldn't chew them. And finally, I just said, "If you make me eat one or more of these, I'm going to puke." And my father said, "If you puke, you're going to eat it." And I said, "If I eat one more of these, I'm going to puke." And he said, "This isn't a debate." And I ate one more and I puked on the table. And um, my sister is sort of my fact checker through the narrative. Like I, I don't know exactly how. Uh, only children do it um, because I think you know having a sibling is a really good thing to you know call up and say you know did Grandma Amen make me eat Vicks Vapor Rub you know like or did I make that up and, and she's like yeah twice she's like yeah twice <laughs> um, which is an unwise medical decision by the way for those of you with children um, you survived yeah. <laughs> Um, she was under the impression that if you wiped it on your chest, it worked. You might as well get it closer. <laughs> get in the organs. Um, but that was a really hard scene to write just for a lot of emotional reasons. It's a really hard scene to read. Um, you know, good. No, I, I, don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it's a, it has to be a really hard scene to read, and it has to be, like, that close, right? So the second per... And I think also, in some ways, the key to the scene, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, is the pullback to the present, where the adult narrator consults, says, I, you know, maybe I made this up, and then consults with the sister, and the sister says, she yeah, I, le I left, I had to leave the room. room. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, I'm not exactly positive that it went down the way I remember it, 
And there's also a whole then you know list of qualifiers about you know whether I should have put it in the book or not because my father's actually a decent human being, right? And it reduces him to a hideous act, you know. Yeah, and I mean not to sidetrack, but I you know there are moments in the book as you know you know everybody's complicated, and one of the things I really like about it is that everybody's complicated. The narrator's complicated. All of the other characters are complicated. The father does these horrible things, but at the same time he's kind there of, more sh- of them? well, I can't remember now. So <laughs> I can't remember what's in the book and what I've heard, but uh, <laughs> but there are also these wonderful. Like he's funny and smart. You know, there's going back to the college semester. There's you know this was the 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 what was the zero point five seven GPA for, um, for years. I thought I had a zero point eight five, and I told people that as like this sort of you know bragging about how stupid and drunk and high I was when I took the the uh, my sophomore year. Um, and then I had to apply for a job, and they needed the transcripts, and I found out it was 0.47. Um, right, and the father, because you had wanted to take the semester I, off, the father I, says... And you, my mother wanted me to stay in school. Right, and you can and, I'd let you tell your own story. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's, but my dad said, I just like well, so your much. mother wanted you to stay in school, and you wanted to take the semester off, and it looks like you both got your fucking wish. <laughs> right, so, you know, so the, the, I mean, what I mean is, like, that creation of three-dimensional character, it's hard to do with real people when they are being presented as themselves as opposed to kind of fictionalized, I mean it's hard to do either way but the fact when they're being presented on the page as themselves um, it's really hard to do and I think that that's one of the interesting things is the way that that complexity of the character and the complexity of the relationship comes through yeah, people do atrocious things but they're also caring and smart in certain ways and so all of that is is really interesting let's talk a little bit about the structure of the book did you know from the beginning the book is for those who haven't read it the book is written in a very kind of fragmentary fragmentary chronology right so it jumps around um, from 2013 2007 1972 1977 Um, what was that was that the original conception did you originally think about writing it in a chronological way and then this is what evolved? How did you come to this structure? Um, I At first it was unconscious. I just wanted to do a nonlinear narrative mm-hmm. um, and I hadn't really thought it out as to why I wanted to do that. What, do it that way. Although um, like one of the examples that I, I tend to use a lot uh, is in the things they carried um, in, in like the third story in, um, Lemon is killed. This soldier is killed. And um, in the sixth story in, you see Lemon talking about what he's going to have for lunch with another character. And it's like if you'd done that book chronologically, they would have been having a discussion about lunch, which would have had absolutely no narrative importance at all. But because the reader's already been granted the information that this character is going to die a week after this lunch happens, them talking about what they're going to eat takes on the weight of tragedy. And I, I just really like playing with time in that way. But when I got about midway through the book, I realized there was more of a reason for it and that I wanted to... Um, uh, I wanted the book to be a sort of structural mimesis of the way my mind works. And, you know, I have rapid cycling bipolar, and I, I don't think 
that's unique to people with rapid cycling bipolar, but the way a lot of people contextualize their lives is they jump around quite a bit. You know, like a story from, you know, when you were 40 reminds you of something that happened when you were 13 and things like that. So, um, but it, it is how my brain works in, in a very specific way, and I wanted the book to sort of give the impression of the way my synapses fire. I mean, you really can't do that because it would be would have been a two thousand page book. Like it'd be like Thomas Wolfe, you know, like, like, or Nausgaard. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, one of those things like, you know, in in to give like a, a small impression of it that hopefully would, would give, a, you know, imply a bigger impression. Well, and it also comes back to that notion of memory, right? That what you're just, you know, memory cycles upon memory. One memory triggers right. another. It's not necessarily a chronology. It adds up to some kind of more of a collage. Personality is more collage than yeah. it is a narrative. And I really wanted the book to be, uh, instead of a, a conflict crisis resolution narrative, I wanted it to be more of a resonant chamber mm-hmm. where, you know, stories, you know, played off of each other Um in a resonant way and, and you know, perhaps gain more power out of order than they would have had in chronological order. Also, I, I just really, like, when I read biographies, not necessarily memoirs, but always biographies. Like, if the first part's about when they were a kid, I skip ahead to the first part where I give a shit. Like, you know, like Keith Richards' book, it's like, when did you get your fucking guitar? You know, like, I don't want to hear about your dad and, you know, when he'd met your mom. It's like, you're Keith Richards. Talk about guitar. Talk about meeting Mick Jagger on the train with the Chuck Berry record. You know, and then we'll move forward. Um, So... You know, really, we should have had that meeting before he put the book out. <laughs> um, but that's true of me with like almost any biography. Is like I don't care what happened to them when they're kids. Yeah, well, it's the problem with biography, right? Because I actually also I don't care what happens to them after they're kids either. Because I, if I know about them, I know it. You know, I've read it in the news. Yeah. So unless they're going to talk, like the Keith Richards biography, the most interesting stuff to me is him talking about courting. Yeah. You know, because that I don't know, but like the the you know the pattern of the life. But I think what you know the difference is you're getting at the emotional life, right? The inner life with with a memoir and the kind of the mapping of the inner life, which is not chronological. And in fact, you know, at many points we're the same as we were when we were seven or nine right. or, or 45 or whatever, you know, there are certain things that never change or get resolved. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of the things, you know, you, you'll find out in therapy quite frequently is you're repeating your seven-year-old self, right. you know, right. over and over and over again. Yeah, um, that's enough there to make you want to stop going no to therapy. No way to fix yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I did want it, I did want those stories to bounce off of each other too, where you know some of the behavior was similar at radically different ages, mm-hmm. um, even though the you know the external issues might have been enormously different. What about antecedents? I mean, one of the things you talk about quite compellingly in the book is teaching. I mean, that comes in and out, teaching, writing, and sort of the idea of thinking about writing and writers you admire and, and, you know, quoting writers and thinking about, and we've been doing it here, you've been talking about Chekhov, and um, in terms of sort of thinking about your own writing and kind of even framing your own writing, how much do those models come into conscious play, the things they carried? Are you thinking about that consciously or is that just kind of the water you're swimming in? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, I think about it consciously when I'm not writing. 
Um, probably in between the process of writing and revision, I, I think a lot about other narratives. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think about other narratives when I'm working on mine. Uh, if it's going really well, I don't even think about mine. You right. know, it's it's almost like you're taking dictation. Um, you know, but I, I really, I don't. You know, I'm really interested in narrative theory. I never think about narrative theory when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. um, I think about it when I read other writers. I think about it when I revise my own work. Um, but it's it's not something that ever occurs to me when I'm when I'm going through it. Um, so I mean, those models are there. I think, um, and it's one of those things that can be enormously important to like every writer individually, and that you can spot it. You know, sometimes like you know, it, at one point. Um, in the late 90s to early 2000s, I had written like a novel, like 15 stories, seven or eight plays, and two screenplays, and I realized they were all about the same thing. And all the stories were entirely different, but right. they were all about this central traumatic event in my life. And it was this hugely epiphanal moment for me, and then it had a quick follow-up epiphanal moment that no one else would ever give a shit about that. Um, but it was enormously important to me to recognize that these had all been, you know, caused by the same fracture in my life. Um, and that I was telling the same story in, in radically different ways. Right. There's a Fitzgerald line about um, what is it? Most writers are so sort of beat up and dazzled and broken or whatever by you know by a couple of significant yeah. events that they keep going back to it again yeah. and again and again, and that all their work is essentially about that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. And Kundera said that his whole career for him could be reduced to the question of. Uh, he had a great line where he said, an idea is often not enough for a poem, but a question can last a career. And uh, he said his whole career could be summed up by what happens to the individual under totalitarian regime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously he's written, you know, tons of stories and novels that have radically different plots, but they all, that uh, actually does apply to all of them in, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't think it's something he sits down and thinks, well, how can I think of a new, another story that's about the individual under totalitarian regime? No, it's the question that drives the work, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that at certain points he has the same reaction that most of us have, which is like, oh, God, another thing about this. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but I've done this. Yes, I've done this. Um, now that you... So are you, I'm interested, too, in this idea that you've kind of attempted to write yourself out of your work and that you're, you know, preparing for the next stage, let's say. The, the, um, do you think that that next stage includes more nonfiction? Do you think you're going to go back to writing fiction, go back and forth? Have you thought about it in any way? Do you think that there's a real um, choice to be made between genre or can, um, can they coexist? I guess they could coexist, although I don't have a single idea for nonfiction at this point. Um, this was the first book I ever wrote that I had the idea for another book while I was writing it. Usually I just am working on the book I'm working on and then I guess I'll just figure it out later. And I, I have no idea what's going to come next when I'm done. Um, but while I was working on this, I had an idea for a novel. Um, and it's the first time that's ever happened to me. So I have a novel that I'm, that I'm working on. Um, that, you know, and all my novels have been first person. Right. Um, this is second person, but it's essentially first person, you know, because it's a memoir. Um, 
so I wanted to do uh, a narrative that I'd never done before. So it's kind of an, an Altman-esque uh, piece with six points of view that takes place over 50 years. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's going to be one of those books that, you know, I used to think that every book should be better than your last book. I used to think that was your job as a writer. And I don't think that anymore. I don't know that that's possible. But I think every book should be more ambitious than your last book. Um, so I'm trying something that either I'm going to fall flat on my face or it's going to be, you know, really successful. And I kind of like not knowing. Right now I'm in the fall on my face period with it. Yeah, but it's early. <laughs> yeah, well, there's several of those, though, right? Right. As it goes through. Yeah, what is, you're right, it, you know, you, you read, you know, there's that Annie Dillard line about, you know, at a certain point you hit, you write to a certain point and then you realize what the fundamental structural flaw is that mm -hmm. you can't fix. And then the rest of your writing process is just trying to prop the structure up so it doesn't fall down. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I know when I've hit that point, I'm close to done. So, um, all right, well, this is this has been great. Let's turn it over to some questions from uh, from the audience. If you raise your hands, we will call on you. So that one publisher that was kind of said that they couldn't use yourself as a marketing plan, when they found out that that wasn't going to happen, did they like literally just get up and... They pulled out of the bidding. Yeah, they were, they were just like, oh, he's not going to be a vegetable by the time we roll this out? Fuck it. Yeah, even failed capitalism is a brutal business, right? <laughs> yeah, it was like we were having a conversation on the phone at one moment, and then it was just like, oh, he's kind of healthy? No. We need more. So I guess the answer would be yes. I haven't read him in years, but I read him obsessively when I was in college. Um, he was one of the first writers who I responded to. Um, so yeah, I would say he was probably a big influence. Uh, you know, I thought it was pretty revolutionary that you could tell stories that were just about your daily life. You know, that I had never read novels that were, you know, just about your crappy job and going home and drinking beer and you know. <laughs> writing about your crappy job and having this sort of <laughs> meta loop going on. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, you know, I, I didn't come from a very literate house. Like, uh, like my father only had, um, my mother didn't read a lot of books and now she reads cat mysteries. Um, yes, Todd, I'm going to work that in. <laughs> um, what was that? Well, there are, like, hundreds of them, apparently. Like, cat mysteries, where cats help solve mysteries. Um, 
but you know, maybe maybe that's what I'll do next. They sell really well, apparently. An, um, Alt- an Altman-esque cat mystery could be really revolutionary. Se- several cats who you don't see coming together <laughs> exactly. until the end. Exactly. Um, I think you're onto something yeah. there. Yeah. 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 Making pack animals. Other but, que- uh, Other questions. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. Not me neither. So, you know, as someone who's had as many concussions and who is told that you have a higher risk for dementia, um, then when you think about your future as a writer, how how, how does that, I mean, does that kind of sit, like, as a burden on you, that you might lose your words or your ability to express, you know, something that is such a core part of your identity, you know, do you... Sorry, I, that's really the only thing to bring up. <laughs> no, that makes total sense. I mean, when I think about it, it scares me a lot. You know, so it's one of those things I, you know, try not to think about a whole lot because um, it's probably either going to happen or it's not. Like I, I've done the damage at this point, um, and you know, I've, you know, neurologists have looked at it and um, have said that there's you know, some damage they can see. There are certain conditions like CTE that you can't diagnose until autopsy. Um, so I won't be around to find out if I had that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I mean, honestly, without, you know, really bumming the room out, I think if I started to have any signs of dementia, I'd kill myself. I think without your memory, you're not a human being. You know, that's... That's who your identity is. You're you're shaped by the experiences of your life, and if you start to lose those, you know, then you're just a you know a coat rack. You know, I mean, if I had a coat, I mean, does that help at all? I'm so, I'm sorry. What? I'm in a similar position in regards to the concussions and the writing and that kind of thing. So oh, I'm sorry. No, but I, I was just, it was helpful to hear we you. We can move to Oregon together. Has any, uh, like, famous white American male writer threatened to fight you? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm going to tell the story that Sarah's looking for. Yes, John Irving threatened to kick my ass. Um, uh, does that need any embellishment? Okay. <laughs> we were... Um, we were at breakfast. He was a guest at uh, the MFA program I was attending, and we were at breakfast one morning. Um, well, obviously it was morning. We were having breakfast, um, and uh, there had just been a law that had been passed in uh, New Jersey. Um, was uh, you know Title IX, which allows for. Um, gender equality in sports and in American high schools. And in New Jersey, there weren't enough women or young, weren't enough girls to make up a a wrestling team. So they had the girls wrestling with the boys. And then a judge ruled that they couldn't do that because there was a sexual element to boys and girls wrestling. And I was sitting there at breakfast and I said, yeah, like there's no fucking sexual element to two guys getting together. (laughs) Little did I know that John Irving was a wrestler 
and a bit touchy about homophobic references to wrestlers. And he said, I'll show you how, how homophobic it is to wrestle. I'll give you that. So then it came up. The, the next time, obviously, I knew he was sensitive to this. Uh, the, the first time was an accident. Um, but the second time, we were all drinking at night, and I, I could still drink then. And I'm like, I'm going to go. I'm going to annoy the fuck out of John Irving. And, uh, and I went up and, like, picked the same subject again. And I'm like, you don't think, like, one guy mounting the other guy? They're, they're both in tights, okay? And one guy mounts the other one from behind. That's the starting position. You don't think there's a sexual element to that? And he's like, I am going to kick your fucking ass. He's like, and I'll show you what, what a sexual element there is to kicking someone's ass. So that's my John Irving story. And I, you know, I've sort of wished that we'd run across each other, but, you know, it's never happened again. I could remind him. <laughs> Someday he'll be too old and decrepit to take me on, but right now he could still kick my ass. More questions. Yes. Um, when you're getting a memoir like this, how do you pick your starting image, which is quite startling. So how did you decide that was how you wanted to open it? Uh, the story about um, my childhood girlfriend being murdered. Um, I think when I started writing the book, that was just something that I was obsessed with. Um, and I was having a lot of trouble figuring out why it obsessed me. And Again, this is one of those sort of epiphanal things that writers realize about themselves that may not be important to readers. Um, but uh, the the first, and you know, it, we were kids. It wasn't girlfriends like, you know, we were college kids or anything. We were like, you know, 10 and 8 years old and, you know, held hands and had done very, you know, nothing other than that. We never kissed even. Um, but she was murdered on my birthday. And the thing that really stuck with me was that it was an unsolved murder. And it really changed my entire Worldview from the time I was a kid was that there could be an unsolved murder, that there could be a narrative that didn't wrap up, that didn't, as Gordon Lish used to say, never reduced itself to meaning. Like, it just stayed there, and it was like the hair at the back of your throat, and it wouldn't go away. Um, and I realized that I very rarely, when I write short, I don't have narrative resolve in my novels. Um, I don't wrap things up. I don't have closure. And I realized that that was a foundational narrative for me, and it's shaped my entire writing career. It's just I don't believe that things wrap up. They, they just stay, and they haunt. And so that was probably why I opened with it. And I with yours. <laughs> I'm honored at that. Uh, but I'm familiar with your work and your biography to some extent. And I, I haven't read this memoir yet, but I've read a little bit about it. And, you know, there's mention of, like, so much of stuff that's really difficult for you, you know, to really, it was hard to, to admit it, to talk about it, to write it. Do you feel some sort of, like, do you feel basically good? Do you feel like there's a cathartic release? And do you feel, you know, relieved and... and happy if I can even use that word that you sort of put it out there? You know, it's weird. Like, I think almost every interview that 
that's happened thus far has asked if there's a cathartic element to having done it. Well, I shouldn't be a journalist. Like <laughs> <laughs> or you should be. You know, like they're all but oddly enough, no. Um, it, the the narratives that were hard to live with are in some ways harder to live with now because I shared them. Um, so they're they're things that were were awful for me to to sit with, and now I have to realize that I put it out in the world, and other people are going to know it now. So in a way, it was um, it made things worse. <laughs> um, there wasn't really a great release or relief from telling the stories, oddly enough. I thought there might be, but there wasn't. But it, it does have the benefit, um, like James Baldwin talked about when he wrote Giovanni's Room, which is a, a novel, but it's essentially 1956 where he came out, you know, it was, uh, um, which was a huge thing at the time. And uh, he said it was really important to him that no one could ever have secrets on him again. Like, no one could say this about you. And he'd say, well, no, I told you first. Um, so in a way, it's, it's refreshing that, you know, like, I'm sure someone could come up with something <laughs> that I didn't put in there that's embarrassing and hideous. But, um, you know, that, that it's out there, it seems like it's done in a way. So there is some comfort in that. Like, I don't have to share it anymore. before I attempted to start this book, um, I wrote like 30 pages in first person of a memoir. And I just thought, I don't want to do this. It, just, it wasn't interesting or exciting to me. Like, um, For a project to be interesting enough to go through to the end, it, it has to have something structural. And it has to have an opportunity for language that I'm interested in and a structure that I'm interested in. And I had neither of those. Um, so... Then I found, you know, uh, the, the, the earliest things I found were the second person in the present tense, and then later I got the structure of the book, and that's when it really sort of cracked open, and I wrote the rest of it very quickly, and once I figured that out. But, uh, you know, I, I think really early in it, I was very concerned. Uh, I, I think at, at lunch or texting Todd at one point, I said, who the hell is going to want to read 200 pages of second-person present tense? People are going to want to kill me. Because, <laughs> um, you know, it tends to work for short stories. And, like, I can think of, like, one or two novels in second person. And there are editors who will just throw a book across a room if it's written in second person. Uh, I just thought, wow, can I sustain it where it would be interesting? And 
then I thought, well, that's a really unhealthy question, and I'm not going to think about that for a while. <laughs> I think we have time for one more. If there's one more question out there, uh, yeah. So, um, Sorry, man. <laughs> maybe we'll squeeze you. Or two. Or maybe two. We'll see. <laughs> So, so when you write these these stories, and especially as they they go out into the world, when you remember them again, do you sometimes think of them as that that story that you wrote, or that piece that you wrote, or the essay that you wrote, rather than thinking of them as that memory that you had? Wow. Um, I don't know about all of them, but one specific one about. Uh, teaching a class where I had uh, a really strange student who wrote the stories about uh, sneaking into his niece's bedroom and sniffing her underwear. Um, I remember that as, as a narrative, as a story more than I remember it as a, an event now. Because um, I wrote about it in an essay and then I wrote about it in a totally, in a much more truncated version in, in, in the memoir. And I think now I've been familiar with it so much as a shaped piece of craft that I'm probably more familiar with the way I told the story than the story itself. So yeah, I do think that happens. That's that's uh, that's a really interesting question. Now I'm going to have to rethink about um, the whole book. <laughs> I'm just thinking of memory. How memory works. Like yeah, you, it, it, you know. Remember the last time you remember the memory. Yeah, yeah, and it gives it almost a sort of meta memory in a way. You know, that it's not just something you remember; it's something you've told. You know, and and told much more slowly than the way you'd tell a story across a dinner table. I mean, to to write it, you know, writing is slow. Writing even a bad book takes a while. You know. <laughs> yeah. When I was in college, I had this friend who was a musician. He was like, you got to respect anybody who makes a record because making a bad record is hard. And I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> and then I wrote a whole bunch of really bad books, and I thought, oh, yeah, maybe you do. <laughs> yeah, but you can make a bad record in a week. In a week still, but a week, you got to be there. <laughs> Somebody has to write those bad songs, Rob. <laughs> Patrick, let's close with you. Uh, okay, why, why use people's real name? I mean, they just say they hate badly, you want to pay them back? I mean, what's... what's, what's <laughs> Was it, was it, was it, was it doing this? I mean, like, I mean, mom and dad, you can't get around. I mean, they've got these people I sort of live with, and you can't get around. But what was the reason for their, for, 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 I mean, for not for using the name people who are alive? Either, if, why, why ask them if they object, or what was the whole point? Um, <laughs> what's your point, man? Um, well, asking them, because if they objected, I wouldn't do it. Um, using it because you know in the true story that's who they were to me uh, um, I mean I used your name but I checked no it's a good question why not make everyone up because um, I made anyone who I couldn't ask right. I, I didn't use their name um, and I did at, at one point I, I asked my ex-fiance I said do you, do you want a different name and she said, as long as you're the bigger scumbag in all of our scenes, <laughs> you can use my name. Um, 
which was my general guiding principle of writing the whole book. As long as I was the bigger scumbag in the scene, it stayed. But yeah, it's, it's a good question. Why was I even concerned with it? But for me, it just made it more real for me to write it. Um, but yeah, they, they could have all been changed, you know. Um, although I've been accused by Gina in ta of taking, you know, radically different ethnic names and turning them all into wasp oh names. Everybody, everybody. I, I didn't even know what a wasp like, was until like I met Gina. Romina, things like people are named Jane. Everyone's like, everyone's named Jane, Laura, Kim. Like, it's so... So don't buy the book, essentially. <laughs> and they didn't all have them in real life. <laughs> yeah, like Conchetta's Karen. Yes! What's wrong with you? Uh, I don't know. It's, it was easier. It's like going through the high school yearbook. <laughs> All right, should we let you off the hook? Uh, um, yeah. Okay. Um, Robert Barish, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.